January 10, 2016, the first show of the new year, and this is your host, Carolyn Baker. Wow, I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that all that holiday mess is over. I love the winter solstice part, but obviously it's a crazy time of the year, which seems to bring out the very worst in the human species. For people in the eastern U.S., it was almost like Christmas in July in terms of weather, and massive flooding, not seasonal blizzards, are still inundating communities along the Mississippi River. And we're on the threshold of another year that is guaranteed not to be an ordinary year on any level. We're perched on the precipice of world war at the moment. In fact, I don't remember being as close to world war or thinking that I'm as close to world war in decades. In addition, the weather extremes, particularly in the U.S., are amazing, and if you're prone to motion sickness, you don't want to look at what's happening in the world's stock markets this week as a result of a global deflationary depression, and it looks like we're on the threshold of another global economic meltdown. Fasten your seatbelts and watch out for the bail-ins, which could wipe out your bank account. I don't know this for sure, but financial wizard Ellen Brown has been warning us about this. I'm just saying. In any event, we've been drop-kicked into 2016 with a big, fat global crisis hitting us in the face everywhere we turn. And we're going to talk about all this stuff today, and most importantly, we're going to talk about how we can respond to the global crisis in a way that makes us more, not less, alive. I've asked my friend and team member Dean Spillane Walker to join me today so that we can discuss what we see as the most important actions that awake individuals can take in 2016 to navigate the present and coming chaos. The title that I've chosen for this show and our conversation today is Full Spectrum Living with Death in Mind. Now, as listeners know, in 2014, I co-authored with Guy McPherson, Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind. And since then, I've deepened my perspective, I hope, in terms not only of the death part of the subtitle of our book, but also in terms of the living part. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Um, I'm going to be talking today with Dean Spillane Walker, as I said, and he's working on a phenomenal book that he's going to tell you about dealing with this very topic, and we're going to speak very honestly about our predicament and not only how to respond, but how we can do so in connection with each other. After graduating from the University of California studying psychology, Dean immediately started what would be the majority of his career in corporate, youth at risk, and personal development and intimacy training. He brings to his work a background as a wilderness guide, experiential learning, and transformation-based training design. Dean has been deeply moved by his exposure to the data and projections used by folks who are aware of abrupt climate change and systems collapse, and he's committed himself to bringing all of his skills and gifts to a world that is obviously has not come to anything near full consciousness of its situation. He's currently working on his first book and a series of workshops and video learning pieces, all intended to offer the participant a safe container in which to cultivate optimal presence 
in the face of our global challenges. Dean was with us on this show in September, and I'm a- I've asked him to return. Dean, welcome back to the Lifeboat Hour. Thanks, Carolyn. Yeah, and let's begin with your telling us about your book, starting with the title, and two things I'd like you to emphasize. First of all, where in your experience and what are you seeing in the world that, that makes this book, you know, come forth? I mean, where did it really come from in you and in the world? And why is it so urgent that we read it? Well, I'm, uh, thank you. I'm, I'm calling the book... Um, really using the same name that I'm also using for a podcast that I'm starting up um, called The Impossible Conversation. And uh, as briefly as I can get it for you, um, I, I, I call it that because that's really what I found myself in as soon as I was uh, introduced to the whole notion of abrupt climate change a couple of years ago. You know, I'd been kind of keeping at arm's length the things that uh, that Mike Rupert and then you and a number of others had been putting out for quite a while. You know, really getting that, that essentially huge amount of truth in it, but uh, kind of finding my own version of denial to keep myself, again, at, at arm's distance from it all. But that immersion, that instant immersion a couple of years ago into the abrupt climate change uh, assertions and projections – uh, really just dropped my jaw. And, um, you know, I, I don't think I could say that I'm one of the best trainers out there. You know, there's some um, phenomenal trainers. But uh, w- one thing I could say that I've brought to my career, and I think I do very, very well, is I bridge from really just a, a, an average person's perspective in the world um, to a new possibility. That's that's my forte in design and delivery of training, and that's what I'm certainly what I'm bringing to all the projects you just mentioned. And um, I immediately, when I was confronted with that information, started to think, uh, if if this stuff is true, if it's even half true, I I I need to turn my life to bringing my gifts to this situation. I have no delusion that I'm going to save the world, no delusion that I have the answers uh, or even any substantial answers, but I've, I know I have gifts to bring, and I care so deeply about the planet and about human beings and us finding a way, the, the most gracious way possible to step into this next chapter of humanity. Um, so I'm really committed to that grace. And... The, from where we are now, as a, in, in particular in the USA, with a, you know, more than half the country either disengaged completely or in full-blown denial of abrupt climate change, uh, to bridge from there to the kind of grace and graciousness that I was just describing, that's going to strain me at my rivets to try and provide trainings uh, both online and in person and the book I'm writing and all the things you just said to create a bridge from where we are now as a culture and as a globe to anything more gracious, anything more uh, heartful um, is, is the greatest challenge I've ever had. And, and as gruesome as of course it is, I can think of nothing more beautiful, oddly beautiful and compelling, than to um, take on this challenge with other people. And you know, my my partnership with you and, and assisting you in the in the ways that I get to um, 
has been part of that fulfilling beauty at this point, really. Um, so it, it feels odd because I, I know your listeners know what I'm saying. I, you know, we all need to find some beauty as we confront these things. But um, it's really come through in spades in in the ways that you and I get to interact and co-create. Um, so I've probably gone beyond your question, but that's uh, that's what I was compelled to say. Well, I love it when people go go beyond my questions. So thank you for that. Now, um, yeah. lately, you've been sharing a lot with me about what's happening to you as you're writing the book, and of course. Having written six books now on the global crisis, I know exactly what you're talking about, but our listeners may not. So please feel free to pontificate on this one and talk about what is happening to you as you write this book. Yeah. Well, um, that bridge that I was talking about from day-to-day regular life that we all know so well, we're just trying to survive, just trying to do well by our families, do life the way we were told it was supposed to be. And I'm certainly no different. I have my foibles. I have my consumer preferences. I have my things that I just don't want to hear about because I want to keep it in denial as as best I can. And, of course, that's pretty worthless as a pursuit these days. (laughs) But (laughs) um, I've been confronting just doing what I am suggesting in these trainings I'm designing and in the book in particular, because I'm right in the thick of the middle of the book and, and it demands that I be in it. You know, my, the lineage of trainers that I came up through, we had to absolutely embody the training we were offering to people. It was not something just offloading one head into another. And I, so I've been doing that. And, uh, you know, I, I can do it right now. Like um, in the past few days, you've sent out in your daily news digest, there was a a link to a remarkable article that I hope your listeners, if you haven't signed up for Carolyn's daily news digest, please do so. Uh, and, and they can do that uh, by going to my website, carolynbaker.net. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, this article, this there was an article that then referenced, it was built around this uh, report that was funded by the National Wildlife Federation a number of years ago, from approximately 2009 was the conversation in the conference that this particular report came out of. And, and I was reading it and integrating quotes from it into my book, and I had to stop in the middle of it, because here I am neck deep in this conversation all day long, And the thrust of this is that these mental health professionals who put together this report uh, now a number of years ago, seven years ago, uh, are pointing to the need very soon, within just a very few years from now, we will see upwards of 200 million Americans being in need of mental health care uh, because of the stress involved with um, we would call it systems collapse as it's associated with abrupt climate change. And, and uh, that's a, that's mm-hmm. it. actually, um, well, the date I have for this is 2012 on the report, but let me just give mm-hmm. the, the title because then people can yeah. Google it. I strongly recommend that people Google and read this report, The Psychological sure. Effects of Global Warming on the United States and Why the U.S. Mental Health Care System is Not adequately prepared. It was written, uh, coordinated by Dr. Lisa Van Susteren, who's a psychiatrist in Washington, D.C. Okay, Dean, go ahead. Yeah. 
So, you know, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the gist of your question, but I, I um, find well, myself... Well, I wanted to in... know how, mm-hmm. how you're being impacted as you write this book and as you look at the culture, because yeah. you've, you've, we've had some conversations lately about how, damn, you know, I'm writing this book for so and so many hours, and then I go out into the culture and I'm just going, yeah, everything yeah. I'm writing about is being validated. Talk to us about that. Yeah. Well, I think anyone who takes a look at that article will get a sense of the incredible uh, validation of, again, what you've been talking about in every one of your books and for so long, and then before that, uh, also by Rupert and and others. Um, What I find myself confronted with, and then certainly with, I talk with a lot of people about this stuff all the time, and I I see even the most heartful people, the most well-intentioned people, people who really consider themselves up on the world concerns and how to be effective in the world and so on, I, I find that, that there is a tremendous, subtle, crafty level of denial that even, again, those most heartful, most well-intended people uh, are tending to slip into. And um, it really seems like what I'm grappling with and that when I see other people keeping themselves at a distance from having to grapple with is that uh, our our situation really in the core of the conversation that just happened at COP21 in Paris is implying we need to slow down and then consciously deconstruct our entire growth-oriented, consumption-based economic model. You know, the, the whole thing needs to get deconstructed. Well, it may be getting de- de- deconstructed as we speak by just its own uh, its own inherent, <laughs> you know, uh, right. systems of destruction that it's created within itself. Right. But I guess what I'm what I'm saying is, yes, we'll, we will of course have our reactions and do what we do when it it just tsunamis on top of us all. I, I understand that. But I, I'm just seeing, again, even the most thoughtful people who keep themselves pretty well informed are still clinging to this notion that, well, if we just have enough windmills and solar, right. well, then we can we can just keep living our life as, as we've always done. And, and right. that's just fine. We'll take the kids to Disney World. We'll just go a little later this year so we can save up. And, and then we can go to Walmart and get the special deal on this and, and on and on the list of our daily patterns go. Right. And what I, I certainly am grappling with in myself, and I think we all are at least sometime soon going to be grappling with, is to the degree we keep going with that delusion, we are just taking directly from the principal account, if you will, of our habitat right now, today, and for the rest of... I'm an old guy now. Within my lifetime, I'm going to see ma- massive downgrade of habitat globally, and I'm I'm complicit. And why I'm taking it to this kind of stark place is is that this is a partial answer to your question. I I'm having to confront that, and then in the name of the these designs that I'm putting together, so to bridge for people, hopefully, is so. If not that, then what, Dean? You know, Mr. Course Designer, what do you what what do you got? 
And what I know that you're on the same page about, and I'm willing to bet most of your listeners are on the same page about, is that we really, there is only one direction to go. And that is uh, through the, I guess Francis Weller might call it a gate, of uh, exploring kind of the, the dark elements of our world that we so avoid as a culture. Those primarily are called, you know, for me, I call, um, of course, the grief conversation and uh, our shadow. Right. And so the two things we we avoid the most vigorously as a culture, as as a globe, really, but especially in the USA, are the very two things that await us at the gate as we, if we are to take on crossing that bridge. The bridge has a gate, and the gate is the befriending of our grief and the acknowledgement of and the exploration of our shadow. Well, thank you for that. I could not agree with you more, and in the light and darkness of what we're discussing, I think this would be a perfect time for a music break. And recently, one of our listeners... (laughs) Something's got to bring us up from that. (laughs) Recently, one of our listeners, Devon, who says he listens to the Lifeboat Hour every week, usually more than once, suggested that we use Jackson Brown's Say It Isn't True. So, Devon, thank you for the suggestion, which is so appropriate following Dean's last comments. Let's listen. Jackson Brown's Say It Isn't True. In the still of the night Lying in the dark To my heart Say it isn't true In the dark and the quiet The movements of my love And the breathing of our children
That was Jackson Brown with Say It Isn't True, and this is the Lifeboat Hour. I'm your host, Carolyn Baker, and I'm talking today with my friend and team member, Dean Walker. And before we go back to your book and how it's working on you, I'd like us to talk about something that you and I and our friend Peter Melton have created that everyone listening to our voices right now can take part in as a way of responding in a life-giving manner to the horrors we both know are upon us. I'm talking about our online symposium that begins Tuesday night, January 19th. This symposium is going to run two nights a week for five weeks, and it's not about learning more facts and statistics of horror. Presenters such as Stephen Jenkinson, Andrew Harvey, Jenea Donaldson, Derek Jensen, Becca Martinson, and more are going to talk to us very candidly from their hearts about how they're responding to the global crisis And in addition, all participants of the symposium will have an opportunity to interact with our presenters and ask them questions, make comments, and very importantly, share with each other how we're all feeling and what we're doing by way of emotional and spiritual fortification in the face of present and future events. The title of this groundbreaking online event is Living with Passion and Purpose in the Face of Humanity's Greatest Challenge. You can register for it right now by going to my website, carolynbaker.net, and reserving your space. And in the event that you can't attend a session, your registration gives you access to all of the video recordings of every session. So, um, Dean, I want to ask you, because we've been working on this for months, what has led you to co-creating this event with all of us? What, What fire is burning in you about our predicament that you can't extinguish? Well, I uh, I mentioned before that I, I, I got to do the stuff. I got to embody the stuff that I'm putting in my book or in a training or something like that. And it's been ridiculously powerful to, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm the one in our team that's doing the video editing of these pre-recorded parts of the show, the interviews. And uh, in in every single interview, I've been so moved by the sharing of the guest, the speaker. And I'm particularly drawn to um, the the first of the pre-recorded interviews that we're going to be showing, um, I believe it's session two of the symposium, with Andrew Harvey. And uh, both of you, you're, you're such obvious um, peas in a pod. You're such good friends and uh, so on the same wavelength that that shows, and that, that just drives this, the beauty of the interview. And what you both share, and, you know, his core, um, one of the phrases that, I don't know if he invented it, but it it certainly may as well have been him, uh, sacred activism. I'm so motivated to my core, and I've been in the business of motivation and uh, vision and mission statements for corporations and organizations and, you know, how to have a vision and blah, blah, blah. And... uh, this this interview that I'm talking about, just one of the, I believe it's ten of them, uh, so moved me that I, it's as if I was hearing it all for the first time. Um, the the freshness and the beauty with which um, both you and Andrew speak about the predicament we're in, and in your own words. Um, saying something similar to what I'm, what I'm pointing to with that creating a bridge from where we all are now in the default culture 
and how to bridge to a place where our hearts open and that what is there when those hearts open is grace, is love. And ironically, just in the middle of all this incredibly bad news, the horrors, is beauty, is love, and is grace. And uh, I'm moved right now. It's just, it's just an incredible experience to be... Um, I've certainly had my, my waves of that throughout my life. And there I was neck deep in that grace in, while just video, just editing the video. So that burns in me now is giving my life to this, again, with no delusion that I'm saving the world. But there's just nothing I'd rather do than break my heart open with others in as safe and beautiful way as possible so that we can love together, love life love each other, love ourselves, reconnect with the earth, love the earth. Uh, what else is there to do? Well, that's absolutely right. And, you know, because of what you just said and how you've said it, um, I want to add something here that I think is hugely important. We have the word purpose in the title of this symposium, and I think mm-hmm. it may be confusing for some people, that word, purpose. Um, I've had the experience of asking people what they think their life purpose is, and some people don't know how to answer the question. So this past week, I was delighted when I returned to Eckhart Tolle's New Earth book from 2009, in which mm-hmm. he clarifies purpose in a way that really, really makes sense to me. And I'd like to read just briefly what he says about this, because it's so clarifying. Um, he says, so the most important thing to realize is this. Your life has an inner purpose and an outer purpose. Inner purpose concerns being and is primary. Outer, con- outer purpose concerns doing and is secondary. Your inner purpose is to awaken. It is as simple as that. You share that purpose with every other person on the planet because it is the purpose of humanity. Your inner purpose is an essential part of the purpose of the whole, the whole universe and its emerging intelligence. Your outer purpose can change over time. It varies greatly from person to person. Finding and living in alignment with the inner purpose is the foundation for fulfilling your outer purpose. So what he's actually saying there is is he's talking about the inner purpose of each of us as being, number one, awakening. And then he defines what awakening is. And I'm going to read that in a moment as well. But first I want to say a bit about what awakening isn't. Awakening is not an intellectual experience. The kind of awakening that Eckhart Tolle is talking about here is beyond just learning more information. It's not about sitting at the computer all day looking for the next piece of evidence of near-term extinction in order to validate what you already know but don't have anyone to talk with about it. So let me read what he says about awakening. He says, Awakening is a shift in consciousness in which thinking and awareness separate. Instead of being lost in your thinking, when you're awake, you recognize yourself as the awareness behind it. Instead of being in charge of your life, thinking becomes the servant of awareness. Awareness is conscious connection with universal intelligence. Another word for it is presence, consciousness without thought. 
So awakening means a shift in consciousness in which thinking and awareness are separate. Now, I talked about this on my Winter Solstice Lifeboat Hour fireside chat on December 20th, in which I used an analogy that you you use a lot, Dean, namely the upgrading of operating systems. That means that rather than relying simply on the operating system of the rational mind and human ego, we're in the process of upgrading to the operating system of awareness or deeper consciousness. I don't like the term higher consciousness because I'm not a fan of the emphasis on heights that is so inherent in the paradigm of industrial civilization. I believe that the collapse of industrial civilization and near-term extinction is forcing us to fall inward and go to the depths of our humanity. And so this inward and outward purpose that Eckhart talks about is, is part of what we'll be addressing in the symposium. So, Dean, I'd like to hear from you what you see as our inner purpose, and then if you would talk a little bit about how we live that out in the external world. Yeah, yeah. I have nothing decisive for you there because it. it I'm just going to be a little sassy here. I'm, it's above my pay grade. I, I don't pretend to know any of our purpose. It's, it's a remarkable question to live into, and I love the way you just asked it, and, and it's beautiful. Um, as close as I get to something to say about that, I think, is, is my, I keep looping back in all of my design time, all of my own meditations, to um, the briefest answer and, and um, the truest answer I can find to how did we get to this brink? How did we get to this awful place in humanity's history? And I just keep coming back to that we disconnected from self and from others and from Earth. And um, as close to a, a consistent purpose as I, I seem to have inside is, is to reconnect, is to connect in uh, a, the most beautiful way I can with self, others, and Earth. And I, I tend to need to do that just because I'm a, a regular average guy, I think. I, I tend to take on the practices that, that break my heart open on a regular basis, as I, as I mentioned before, that have me um, befriend my grief and familiarize myself with the shadow and, and how it will run my life if I'm unaware of it. And the, the more that I let myself go there, and struggle there, the struggle that it is to go through those places is the degree to which I believe I get to touch the place that you, I'm guessing that Eckhart Tolle is talking about, the place of grace, the place of of massive expansion, of connection, of oneness. And there is so much love there and so much beauty. Um, that it really disappears all of my previous thoughts or fears about diving into those dark places, the grief and the shadow and so on. Um, That's what I would say. Well, you know, you used the word connection there about four or five times, and I love that you did that, um, because one of the things that this symposium is going to offer is a place um, 
for people from all over the world to interact with each other. And I believe mm-hmm. this is going to be a very different kind of format from just making comments on Facebook. Um, the support groups on Facebook that are talking about the global crisis are excellent places mm-hmm. to connect with others and feel less alone. But I believe that the quality of heart-based conversation that our symposium is going to offer may be much more deeply satisfying and, and validating. What, what do you think about that? I think you're right on. Um, I, I was struck, you know, truthfully, I get into my own version of, of my workaday world and my fast-moving, get-it-all-done mode. And uh, as I mentioned, I, I had to slow that mode way down when I started to edit the various interviews for the symposium. And then I remembered really why we all sat down and said, let's do this together. <laughs> right. And, and it's so beautiful. Um, and it is so desperately needed. There is so little in, in this world of instant round-the-world communication and friending and Twittering and on and on it goes, there's so little intimacy. There's so little vulnerability with each other in the most beautiful way that I'm describing. And I believe that the, the people who come together around this type of work and these types of interviews and so on are are going to be finding their people. I know it takes work for many people because it can be kind of a it can be a deeply alone experience, lonely experience, trying to find your people in this day and age. But um, certainly this is, I can't imagine a more magnetic place to touch in with others, other kindred spirits. Yeah, and one of the topics that uh, you and I have talked about a lot recently, and you mentioned the word several times uh, already in the show, um, I just released a book on the human shadow. And in in your own words, I'd like you to define the shadow and give us an example of how it typically operates in our lives. Mm. Well, again, if, you, if you'll just bear with me, kind of going back to my, um, my kind of street upbringing and my kind of... Uh, gritty way of describing things. It's not very academic, but I, I think you'll get the idea. Um, That's I, good, I not very that... academic. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the street. That... Let's hear the street. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that there's this, your question is self-explanatory at the level of the globe. You know, it, right. it's hard for even the person who just barely has ever heard of the notion of a shadow, meaning, um, unexplored, unacknowledged, uh, certainly unhealed uh, aspects of ourselves that behind our consciousness in, an, in a, a way that is sort of behind our curtain of, of awareness is running the show. If we don't become aware of it, if we don't get some light into those shadows, into that, that area of our awareness and our being, they will run the show. And I believe that that's, that's entirely what's happening on the global scale. So, I, I, again, I hope that's self-explanatory, and, and I, I hope callers or, or people who will email you in the future will call in and complain if that's not so, and we can cover it more later. On a more personal level, um, I, I think that there are some really good kind of down-home, e- easier ways to understand it than Carl Jung was plenty clear and gorgeous but his his work is voluminous. He's just he, an extraordinary human being that um, 
yeah, his body of work is, is immense. So to kind of filter it out, there are some folks that have really done a great job. And one I would suggest is Brene Brown. And she, she, I don't know if she ever uses the word shadow, but she sure uses some of the indicators that I'd be pointing to in that street level layout that I'm talking about. Um, words like shame mm-hmm. and blame yeah. and guilt and um, judgment. You know, if we just take that little handful to start with, I, I, what I am now comfortable doing after years and years of my practices in this is I know that when I'm springing into blaming and judging, that the only useful place to look once the dust settles and I've stopped fuming or whatever it is I'm spouting about is to look at what part of my shadow is screaming to be heard. What part of my shadow is, is trying to be understood or express itself. And I, I consider that a, a pretty great place to be in considering where it used to be years ago in my, when I first started becoming aware of this shadow dynamic, I had no idea. All I had was, and all I could identify with was my opinion and my righteous judgment. And I hate to tell you, I could be one righteous son of a gun. And literally that could go to violence. You know, it wouldn't be difficult for me to go to violence with it, and certainly at the other street folks, street-level folks that I would hang out with from time to time, that's how it works, is the shadows constantly running the show. And so we're constantly reactive with one another, and we almost never understand, why am I so angry here? Why do I want to hurt or kill or damage something or person or... So um, I, I don't think that was a very um, compact or clear, necessarily clear answer, but that is a few of the pieces I've duct taped together over my years. Um, and I, I guess I'd want to just recap the, the indicators of when my shadow is active, I'm tending to judge, I'm tending to blame, I'm tending to feel shame. Or, or avoid feeling shame by getting angry, which is my, my track forever. These are the, these articulations are the sign of somebody who's walked this path some, done some mapping, has some internal awareness, and I, I pray for us all to have some substantial amount of that kind of awareness. And the only way I know to do that is, first and foremost, a lot of personal work struggle and work to get through these layers and then also to have a caring safe tribe or community or partners to go through those layers with well thank you for that plain and simple just plain english definition of the shadow i I really love it and you know as i was listening everything you said about yourself or you said about uh, a person uh, can be applied to the world, you know, can be applied collectively. Um, and yeah. so you're absolutely right that Jung's work is voluminous. And what I tried to do in uh, Dark Gold, The Global Crisis and the Human Shadow, is to take these these aspects of the personal shadow and shine the light on them as to how they live out, how they play out, in our world 
you know, in in things like racism, in things mm-hmm. like empire and militarism, and and on and on and on, um, because we really need to work on this not just personally, but collectively in groups that we're involved with in communities. Um, we need to see that that our personal shadow is just one aspect of this huge, giant, global crisis. Um, And we all need to be doing work on that. Otherwise, if we're not doing shadow work, I'm telling you, we're still part of the problem. And if we want to not be part of the problem, you know, and and we're all human and we all make mistakes and we've all contributed, we've all been complicit in this crisis, but if you want to stop being part of the problem, you really have to do some shadow work, right? Exactly. Couldn't have said better. So I think it's time for another music break, and uh, you requested This Is It by Kenny Loggins, and would you please tell mm-hmm. us why you chose this song for this program? Yeah, yeah. I think most of us know Kenny Loggins as a kind of a pop singer, pop songwriter, uh, Loggins and Messina and Top Gun and all that stuff, and and great that he did all that. I don't really care for all that side of his work. Um, he did a, an album a while back um, I think it's called Conviction of the Heart. It's either that or that's one of the main songs on it. It's an absolutely gorgeous album. It's inspiring, and it's lyrics like he's never done before or since. And um, uh, he also did a live album right about that time uh, called uh, From the Redwoods. And I went to UC Santa Cruz, and uh, that's where he recorded this incredible concert. If you can find the, the DVD, I'd recommend just buy it. And uh, this particular version of the song, This Is It, comes from that live recording. And it is completely different than the studio version that you might have heard on the radio. And uh, it is briefly, it's a song about his father confronting uh, having a terminal uh, illness and Kenny Loggins uh, really working with him, doing the personal work of confronting death together. And it's extraordinary. It, and, and I didn't ever hear the words or really know what it was about until I heard this version. And uh, I just uh, would like to invite all of us to listen to it with an open heart, uh, one man talking to another about how to approach death in the most beautiful way possible. This is it with Kenny Loggins. Let's hear it. There have been times in my life I've been wondering why Still somehow I believe always survive Now I'm not so sure you're waiting here One good reason to try Lord, what more can I say? What's left to provide? You think that maybe it's over Nowhere to hide No time for 
That was This Is It with Kenny Loggins, and this is the Lifeboat Hour. I'm your host, Carolyn Baker. I'm talking today with friend and team member Dean Spillane Walker, uh, who, along with me and our friend Peter Melton, have created a fabulous online symposium that will begin Tuesday night, January 19th. And Dean is also talking about his new book in progress and what epiphanies he's had while writing it. If you want to register for our symposium, please go to my website, carolynbaker.net. And the title is Living uh, with Passion and Purpose in the Face of Humanity's Greatest Threat. We only have a few minutes left, Dean, and so I want to just briefly ask you a little bit about something else we haven't talked about on the show at all. I know that for a number of years you've been doing men's work, which means different things to different people. Uh, But before I ask you about your specific involvement with men's work, I want to speak to how important I believe groups are that allow men to confront with support the messages they receive in this culture about what it means to be a man. 
I've known many men over the years who were doing deep work on healing the patriarchal, soul-murdering wounding that they've experienced in this culture. And I know you're committed to doing such work in your life. Um, so tell us more about that work and its relevance to the rest of the work you do. A little bit about that really important work. Um, well, I, 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 yeah, the work that I'm uh, currently in and have been for about 12 years now is the Mankind Project or the New Warriors work. And um, that's available in uh, many countries around the world, um, a whole bunch of graduates and centers here in the USA. And uh, so people could find that on MKP or Mankind Project by Googling those. Uh, you know, it's just damn good work. Uh, it's one of the few places uh, where a man can just find other men who are interested in growing and, and bettering themselves as men and uh, and doing that in the culture that they're in, But whether it's Australia, Europe, uh, here in the USA, and so on. Um, I would say that there's another group that I'm also involved with recently. Uh, came much to my surprise, again, I mentioned I'm an older guy. There's a Conscious Elders Network down in the Bay Area that um, is also intending to be global. And um, I found that they are an extraordinary group, uh, extraordinary clarity and participation in the world. This is not a bunch of old fogies, uh, you know, just kind of amusing themselves. These are people really making a difference, doing a great job. So, again, the Conscious Elders Network, I would suggest them as well. There is there's good work to be done, and these are great places for uh, in this case, obviously, older people or men or both, uh, to find uh, kindred spirits like we were talking about before. Great. Well, uh, speaking of elders, I'm so glad you mentioned that word. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of saying that um, the elder is not necessarily older, and elder has to do yeah. with wisdom. And we had a wonderful elder uh, who's about age 25 on this show a few weeks ago, Tyler Hess. And next week we're going to have an elder on the other end of the spectrum, Dr. Harvey Austin, on. And he's going to be talking about his new book, Elders Rock. So you're not going to want to miss the show. And Dean Walker, my friend, my team member, thank you so much for being on this show today. Wish you well in all your work and looking forward to doing some more work with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on, Carolyn. And I look forward to as many of your listeners as possible joining us on the symposium. We'd love to have you there. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome, and sign up for the symposium by going to my website, carolynbaker.net. We'll see you again next week. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor, the rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat is leaking Everybody knows Captain Lion, everybody 
this broken feeling Like their father or their dog just died Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolates And the long stem rose Everybody Everybody knows that it's now or never.